Turn with me to Luke 22. Many years ago, uh, when I was living in California, I don't usually admit that in public, but uh, there's a lot of things I'll tell you this morning that I don't usually admit in public. But anyway, uh, my parents' house was burglarized, and uh, a lot of their possessions were stolen. I lived in a city a couple hundred miles away at the time. I was a brand new baby Christian. And a couple months after the burglary, I came back to town visiting my parents. Uh, Since before I was a believer, I uh, associated with people who did that kind of thing. I still had friends in that line of work. And I asked around and found out who did it. And it was one of my old friends. A guy that knew the family through me. Uh, Somebody who still called himself my friend. But he had taken advantage of that to get what he wanted. He had harmed my parents. Now, how do you think I felt about this guy? You know, he had betrayed me. He, he uh, like I said, had harmed my parents. I was furious. This guy was a Judas. Let me ask you, what comes to your mind and heart when you hear the word, the name Judas? I mean, he's infamous. He betrayed our Lord. He is the single person most directly responsible for our Lord's arrest that resulted in his execution. You know, if uh, he would be the, the primary defendant in a wrongful death suit if we had those back then. Uh, so let me ask you, how do you feel about him? How would you treat him if he was here today? Now let me ask you one more question. How did Jesus feel about Judas? How did Jesus treat him? Well, let's take a look at our passage, starting with verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus. For they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas Calling, or excuse me, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented, watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. All right, first of all, we're told that the, uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, called the Passover, was approaching. Now, what this was, was a week long of feasts that commemorated the, the, the deliverance of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. The, the whole week of feasting was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The very first night of the feast was the Passover meal. So the Passover was one evening of the entire week long feast. Now, during this feast, it was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread because they couldn't cook anything with leaven in it, anything with yeast. In fact, they would go through the house and make sure there was no leaven in the whole house. Now, there's a lot of symbolism in this, but the most basic reason for that was that on the night of the original Passover, this meal had to be eaten in a hurry. They, they didn't have time to let anything rise. They couldn't cook anything with yeast. They, they had to, to cook it quickly. They had to eat it all with their shoes already on, their traveling coats on. They had to burn the leftovers so that they could leave immediately when the word came. Ready to go 
at a moment's notice. And Passover meal refers to the fact that on that evening, a, a, a lamb was sacrificed and some of its blood was put on the, the doorframe of the house so that the angel of death passed over that house. That's why it's called Passover. And, and the people in that house were spared the judgment that fell on, on Egypt as God was, was bringing his people out. So this was what they were getting ready to celebrate. This was the event that the Jews looked back on as the proof that God loved them, that God could take care of them. This event marked the beginning of the nation of Israel. And it was this, this celebration happened every year to remember what God had done, how much He loved the people of Israel. Now, it's interesting that the religious leaders uh, in our story had already decided not to try to arrest Jesus during the Passover. That's recorded in Mark 14. They, they made that decision. But God had other plans. You see, God wanted Jesus' sacrifice to happen during the Passover because Jesus is the true Passover lamb. The, the, the first Passover was really just a picture to, to prepare people for the true Passover, for Jesus giving his life for our sins so that the judgment of God would pass over us as well when we put our trust in, in him. So like I said, these guys had already decided among themselves that it's not, they're not going to do it during the Passover. Yet when Judas comes to them, we're told they were delighted. They changed their plans. You see, God is always in control. Even when people's sins are at their worst. God doesn't cause the sin, but he controls its expression so that it will fit into his ultimate purposes, his ultimate plans. He, has, he never loses control. Look at verse uh, 22. Look ahead. It says, The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. See, it's already a plan that the Son of Man would go, but that doesn't relieve Judas of his responsibility. Jesus' death was no accident. It wasn't due to kind of circumstances swirling out of Jesus or, or the Father's control. People weren't messing up God's plans. God is in complete control at all times. He never loses that. But that doesn't excuse, excuse people's choices in the midst of that. People are still responsible for the decisions they make. We are still responsible for whether we trust God in our hearts, whether we obey Him. It's just that God only allows to come out of the heart those things which will ultimately fit His purposes and His plans. This is important, I think, as we understand Judas, that he was not set up. He was not a victim of his circumstances. He made real choices. Now, what about Judas? Judas was one of the 12 apostles. That means that Jesus chose him to be one of the people closest to him, one of the leaders of the other followers. Now, does this mean that Jesus is an incredibly bad judge of character? Does this mean that Jesus was duped? He chose Judas. No, not at all. Jesus knew from the very beginning 
that Judas would betray him. John 6, 64 says, For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. See, Jesus told the disciples that he was going to be betrayed. He knew it. Well, if he knew it, does that mean he was kind of in denial? He was denying, he was trying to close his eyes and pretend that everything was okay when everything wasn't okay? Again, no. Jesus is not an enabler. He doesn't play those games. Jesus spoke clearly about what was happening. He told his disciples what was happening. Jesus wasn't just quietly keeping it to himself. He saw it and he spoke it. And that's important. In fact, at this point in his ministry, he was speaking directly to Judas. In the other accounts of the Last uh, Supper, we're told that Jesus turned to Judas and he told him to go and do what he had already set his heart to do and to do it quickly. Jesus was shooting straight with Judas. This is such an important distinction. Sometimes in our families, in our marriages, in our other relationships, things are not right. God doesn't call us to pretend. He doesn't call us to, to just try to act like everything is, is okay when it isn't. He calls us to speak the truth, to, 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 to honestly say what we see going on. Sometimes we, we need to, to, to set healthy, strong boundaries to stop destructive behavior in our relationships in our lives, but we are always to speak the truth, to to talk to our rebellious child about their rebellion and what it's doing to them, what it's doing to us, to to talk to our in-laws about their attitude and how that's affecting the family, to speak the truth to our spouse when our marriage is unhealthy. Sometimes we need to bring things to a head like Jesus did so that we can deal with it. Sometimes we uh, need to tell someone else to get help. Like I said, sometimes we need to build strong boundaries so that, that damaging, destructive behavior will stop. But the reality is it isn't always God's plan for us that the other person will change. Often, we are called to keep loving, to do the right thing, to, to trust Him, knowing that the other person, their heart is wrong. We're, we're to continue speaking the truth in love. We're con- to continue setting healthy boundaries. We're not to, 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 to be dishonest about what we see. But again, we may have to recognize that God has a bigger picture in mind. And then we go ahead and we trust Him. We listen to Him and obey Him in the midst of a very difficult situation. Otherwise, we can end up like Judas in our attitudes, in our actions, distrusting God in the midst of what He is doing. Jesus spoke the truth to Judas. Jesus kept loving Judas. Let's take a look at Judas. We don't know when he joined up with Jesus. Sometime early in Jesus' public ministry, Judas saw in him maybe the answer to some of his needs, some of his desires. So fairly early on, he started following Jesus. 
You see, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, his call to people was, Come and see. Follow me. Watch. Listen. And as people did that, they saw the Messiah speaking the words of truth. They saw the Messiah uh, healing the lame, giving sight to the blind, freeing captives from their sins. Jesus is indeed the answer to our need and our deepest longings. But many people, and Judas was one of these, had very wrong expectations of what Jesus was offering and what Jesus was doing. Many of them thought that Jesus was going to throw off the Roman rule, set up his own political kingdom. And and these people wanted to be on the ground floor of that, thinking that would give them a a position of of power and influence in, in the new order. Again, as best we can tell, Judas had these kinds of aspirations. But really, most of the disciples did. They all were thinking in these terms, at least at one point. Jesus keeps correcting that uh, expectation, that perception. He keeps telling them that he came to suffer and die to save humanity. He insists that he is not setting up a political kingdom. John tells us in his gospel that the real turning point for Judas came six days earlier. Jesus and his disciples are in Bethany at Mary and Martha's house having a meal. Mary walks in with a very expensive bottle of perfume. Pours it on Jesus' feet. Wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. And the disciples, almost all of them, were outraged. But Judas was the one who put it into words and confronted Jesus. This money could have been used for something more valuable. It could have been given to the poor. And Jesus rebukes Judas at that point. He says, leave her alone. Mary saw deeper. Mary was listening. She understood when Jesus talked about his death that he was, he was, that was approaching. Mary wanted to express her love to Jesus as he, as he moved toward that death. But Judas was frustrated. His plan was not for Jesus to die. His plan was for Jesus to rule. What happened then is it suddenly soaked through. He realized that Jesus was not going to give to him what he expected. Jesus' uh, refusal to make his mission political, his insistence that he was going to die, finally soaked in. Judas was not going to get what he wanted from Jesus. So his heart turned. Now again, realize all of the disciples were confused at this point. All of them were disillusioned. All of them were having to try to figure out, this is not what we thought. But the others trusted him in the midst of their confusion. Judas didn't. In disillusionment, he turned away and began to take things into his own hands because you can't trust Jesus. In his, his, his disillusionment and his hurt, he felt justified in what he did. That justified his actions. And he went out and he made arrangements to betray Jesus. We're told that Satan entered him. When he made that decision uh, on the basis of his hurt and disillusionment to turn away from the Lord, to take things into his own hands, he opened himself up for the influence of the enemy who moved in at that point and led him down a path of destruction. 
Recently, I talked with a man who had just turned his back on God. He'd started coming to Cole several years ago, quite a few years ago, in fact, because he was looking for something. He thought Christianity could give him what he wanted. He was right. So he started coming, decided to follow Jesus. He realized he had some problems in his, his family, and he thought this would help. This is a resource he needed for his family. Again, he was right. But even though things started to get better at first, didn't ultimately help. His family was falling apart. His son had gotten into to some bad trouble. His wife wasn't sure that she wanted to stay in the marriage. He was furious with God. I mean, this was not what he had signed up for. This is not how he expected it to come out. God wasn't doing his part. His heart had turned bitter. And so, in his own mind, his disillusionment, his hurt, justified his actions, his hateful actions toward his wife and his son. And ultimately, it justified him getting involved in an affair with another woman. At that point, there was nothing, nothing that I said could change anything. You see, Satan had moved in to that bitter heart to lead him down a, a path of destruction. And people, here's the warning. Many of, of you here have, have realized a need in your life. That's good. That's right. You've come to the right place. If you come to the Lord, you've decided to follow Jesus. Things aren't working out like you had hoped. Maybe your marriage isn't going like you want it to. Maybe you don't have a marriage and you desperately want one. Maybe your job isn't going well, isn't working out. Maybe you or someone in your family's health is deteriorating. Maybe someone you love has died. Maybe some other relationship has soured. Maybe your struggle with some habit or, or, or addiction is just overwhelming you. Things are not getting better for you. They are getting worse. You are not getting what you expected from God. You feel cheated and lied to. You're confused. We all go through these times. But you really are at a crossroads. You're at risk. Satan is, is, is waiting to, to, to take advantage, to move in and take advantage of that disillusionment. Like I said, we all go through these times. Again, the disciples were all confused. They were all disillusioned. In fact, at this point in, in Jesus' ministry, he, when he first started, he was talking about all that he would give, life and light and spiritual health. And as the, his ministry went on, he began to talk more about his cross and them taking up their crosses and, and the fact that they would suffer. By this time, most of the crowds had already turned on Jesus and walked away. And at one point, Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, are you going to leave too? Peter spoke up and he said, Lord, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God. You see, in the midst of their confusion, they still didn't understand. They still didn't know what was going on. They were still hurt. But in the midst of that, 
They trusted him. They knew him, who he was. And as a result, they trusted him. They didn't turn away from him and turn on him in anger and hatred. But again, Judas did. Now, does this mean that Judas lost his salvation? I thought about whether I wanted to get into this <laughs> this morning, because that's what everybody always gets excited about. Let me tell you, no, I don't think it does. He never had it. Even though Judas followed Jesus, he never knew him. He had never come to the point where he in his heart trusted him, where he said, I trust Jesus more than I trust myself, and I will put myself under him no matter what. You see, had Judas come to that point, then he would have come back to the Lord. He may still have betrayed him in a tantrum of anger, but he would have come back just like Peter did after he denied the Lord. See, the fact that you're following Jesus, that you want to follow Jesus, doesn't mean that you're saved. There comes a point for each of us where we have to decide, do I really trust him? Now, for some, that happens when they first decide to follow the Lord. They pray a prayer. The decision's made. There is no turning back. It's a done deal. They trust Him. They'll go through struggles and ups and downs, but at the core of their heart, it's an answered question. But for many, there's an initial decision to to follow, to, to come and see, to follow Jesus. And in that process, they begin to come to know who He really is what He really offers, what His death really means. And as that comes, that realization soaks in, typically they'll reach a crisis point where they have to decide, do I really trust Him? That can happen the day after they, they decide to follow Him. It can happen 20 years after, but it has to happen. Now hear this very carefully. Even though the fact that you choose, you've decided to follow Jesus doesn't mean you're saved. The fact that you stumble, that you fall, that you fail in the process of following Jesus absolutely does not mean you are not saved. You cannot lose your salvation. See, the fact is we all stumble and fall as we follow Jesus But if God has planted his life in you, you will come back. He will see to it. The point of of this passage here is not to decide who's a believer and who's not a believer. The real point is for us to deal with the fact that at those crisis points, at those points where life is not going the way we want it to, in fact, it's going the opposite way and we are crushed and confused and hurt, we are at a point where we have to dig down and decide... Will I trust Jesus? If we walk away, then Satan, the enemy, will move in, take advantage of that, cause all kinds of destruction in our lives and through us. And if we never really knew him, the Lord, we'll just keep walking. If we belong to him, truly belong to him, then we'll come back, maybe limping and tattered from the damage that we've done. But forgiven 
and restored. Let's go on in our, our passage. Watch how Jesus handles all this, starting with verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go, make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to go to prepare it? They asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. Before we go any farther, let me, I want to make a point here and tell you a little about what's going on before we finish the passage. The point I want to make is that when Jesus calls us to do something, asks us to do something, he supplies what's needed for us to fulfill that command. You see, so often when we step out in obedience, we don't know what the next step will be. He just tells us the step in front of us. But when we do, when we step out and trust him, the next step is there. With, with Peter and John, they didn't know where this house was. He just sent them in. He says, hey, just follow my directions and it will unfold in front of you. So often that's the way it works for us. A friend of mine told me uh, by the time she felt led by the Lord to share the gospel with a neighbor. She was nervous, kind of scared, didn't know how to do this, didn't know how this woman would react, but she chose to obey. So she sat down with her neighbor and started sharing with her. And as she spoke, this woman started to cry. So she stopped, thinking that she had hurt her. But her neighbor said, last week I prayed. I said, God, I don't know if you're there, but I need you. And then I didn't know what to do after that. And here you are telling me about him. See, and she gladly gave her life to the Lord. Now, it doesn't always happen that dramatic. But whenever Jesus calls us to do something, he supplies the next step when we need it. He always goes before us. Now let me ask you, why in our passage doesn't Jesus just tell Peter and John where to go? And the fact is that the house they end up in belongs to one of Jesus' followers, probably John Mark. Jesus had made arrangements in advance, set all this up, made all of these plans. And why did he do it this way? Why didn't he just say, go to John Mark's house? Why all the, the kind of mission impossible instructions? Well, because Judas was there. And we've already been told that Judas was looking for a quiet opportunity when there were no crowds to betray him. Jesus was really looking forward to this last meal with his disciples. He had some very important things still to teach them and to show them. The, the, the Gospel of John has a large section of these teachings and the things that Jesus did. Luke doesn't record very many of them, but this is a very important part of what Jesus wanted to give to them. Jesus didn't want this last meal interrupted by a SWAT team kicking in the door. Jesus is no fool. He realizes, he knows by this time that he can't telegraph his moves. So he sets up 
makes arrangements for a guy carrying a jar of water to lead his disciples to the house. Now, in that culture, usually only women carried water jars. So this man, probably Mark's servant, would have been obvious when they went into the city because he was the only man carrying a water jar. But think how this must have seemed to Peter and John. Why all this cloak and dagger stuff? I mean, this is, is, doesn't make any sense to them. This is terribly inefficient. What if we can't find this guy? What if he's not there? Then what do we do? This must have seemed like needless complication to them. They had no way of knowing what was behind it. But Jesus had his reasons, and they are good ones. You know, life often seems needlessly complicated. But Jesus has his reasons, and they are good ones. We don't see what's behind. Let's, let's read on. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They begin to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Okay, the main thing that Luke records for us is the establishment, the institution of the Lord's table, communion. After the, the Passover meal was finished, the last Passover that God would ever recognize, Jesus instituted a new celebration, one that celebrates an even more important event than the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. The, 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 the old covenant that was established by that first Passover is now being replaced by the new. And that new covenant in Jesus' blood means that for those who put their trust in Him, judgment passes them over. See, Jesus' death on the cross means that in spite of our failures and falling, God loves us. He absolutely loves us. And He's removed any obstacle for us to come to Him and receive that love, to enjoy that love. This sacrifice, God giving this much, means He'll never go back on it. He will always draw us back to Himself And all of our sins, all of our confusion, all of our failures will no longer come between us and God. And just as at that first Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Jews remembered God's love and the proof of God's love. So now with communion, we remember the ultimate, the the total expression of God's love in sending His Son to die for us. That is the final and complete proof that He loves us. We can trust Him even when we don't understand what's going on 
in our lives. Jesus said, do this to remember me. That's what communion's for, to remember him. Now, I want to make just a couple of observations about communion. First of all, historically, there has been quite a controversy about what communion really is. Because Jesus says, this is my body, some, including Martin Luther, said, well, he said, it is my body. So somehow that bread, when it's blessed or, or, or when it enters the mouth or the stomach, becomes Jesus' actual body. But the fact is, it is a symbol of his body. I hold this picture up and show you all. It's a great picture, by the way. You say, who is that? I say, this is my daughter. Now, who here thinks this piece of paper is my daughter? This is a picture of my daughter. Communion is a picture of our Lord. A a time to stop and remember who He is and what He's done and, and the complete acceptance and forgiveness we have because of what He has done. Last week was my daughter's birthday. And one of the things that my wife did to celebrate, to commemorate that, is she made a poster of pictures of her growing up. And what that did for us, as we stopped in the middle of our celebration and looked at those pictures, it reminded us of who she is and how precious she is to us. Even though she was right there with us, it was so sweet to to just remember, to look at those reminders and remember her. That's what communion is. To be reminded, to look at these reminders and remember Him. Jesus said, do this to remember me. When should we do it? How often should we do it? In this church, we typically share in communion once a month. Other churches, they do it every week. Some churches, they never do it when they're gathered, only in homes. Let me tell you what, what I think. I think that when Jesus said this, what he had in mind is every time that we sit down to share a meal, that we would stop and remember him. See, I think it's for any time, any place that we stop. We need constant reminders of who he is and what he's done and the forgiveness that we have in him. We need to remember that daily. Daily, we need to remember how much we love him, especially how much he loves us. Now, it's appropriate for us to do it when we gather. That's good. But it shouldn't be restricted to those times. We should do it often. This may sound borderline heretical, but one of my fondest memories of communion was with a bunch of college students and a pitcher of Kool-Aid and saltine crackers, because that's all we had. We celebrated communion. We stopped and remembered who Jesus is, what he had done. That was a sweet time. It's for any place, any time. Lord Jesus, we remember you. When we do, we're reminded of our sinfulness, our weakness, but we are reminded of your love that covers that that is so much greater than that, that our sins, our failures don't keep us away from you, that uh, your death has taken care of that and your 
blood poured out for us means that we can receive your spirit and walk with you as weak, as frail as we are. Lord, we love you. And we know for a fact that you have loved us. That you can be trusted even when we don't understand what's going on in our lives. Worship you. Amen.